Josie Single. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Uh, Happy New Year, Katie. It is indeed a new year. They just keep coming, don't they? They Better and better every year. They really do. It's like every year there's a new one. It's crazy. I think 2022 is going to be even better than 2021, which I haven't followed the news closely, but there were no major problems to speak of. I think everything was going well. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I have a question for you. Uh, Sure. You're recording from Asheville, North Carolina. Uh Uh-huh. I am. The Paris of the South. <laughs> yes, the Paris. I think it's the Lebanon of the South. <laughs> the Beirut, but like, the but like in yeah, the Beirut, the Beirut of the South. But like in the good years. Yeah, they, well, Beirut had some good years. Yeah, um, you just drove across this great nation of ours. I, I'd like you to offer, like, imagine you're reviewing America on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Like you're a consumer of America. You you got America. You consumed it. You're moving on. You want to leave a review. How would your review read? Okay, my review of America. Uh, first off, extremely large. I don't know whose idea it was to make this country so big, but it is a very large country, especially when you have to drive in January across the country. So you have to avoid the whole northern half of it. So like down an entire coast and then across across the nation. So first off, very large, very scenic, also terrible food. That's my terrible food. Well, the because food? I only I only ate on the freeway, so the freeway foods all. I only ate stuff I could find on the side of the freeway. Exactly. I did. I did pass the uh, the infamous Roadkill Cafe on uh, on I forty. Um, did not stop there, but lots of lots of fast food. Uh, I like how you're like. Whose idea was it for the country to be so big? I think like the the settler colonists. I guess if I were uh, if I were making a country, I would make it very small. You're saying the original inhabitants should have should have fought harder to have it not be so big. What? Yeah, the original inhabitants. You know, I think who who can we blame for this? Pangea. Whose fault is it that we have this giant fucking country? <laughs> fucking Pangea. No. Okay. Well, anyway, we don't need to get into ancient geology. The point is, you're in Asheville, which is going to reinvigorate the pro- the podcast. I can't talk. Add some southern charm to it. I think this is going to be a really good era for us. Should we add some bluegrass music to our theme song? Some twang. Yeah, we need more twang in general. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, I have a lot of, I'm gonna be here for two months, and I, I really don't have that much to do. So I was thinking I would, I would pick up the banjo. My dad, my dad has a bunch of banjos laying around. So you're learning piano. I could learn banjo, and we could put it together a little band. We could write some very offensive songs together. <laughs> well, you're already a rapper. That's true. Uh, I am a rapper. Uh, Although I, when it comes to you, I prefer the term rapist. Rapist. <laughs> All right, Katie. Well, well, welcome to the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, is is Asheville part of the Eastern Seaboard? It's pretty far from the ocean. It is. I I don't know what is what does the seaboard count as anymore. I've it used that East word Coast. a lot without knowing what it is. Yeah. yeah, the Eastern Time Zone. Katie, what is the name of this uh, temporarily partially relocated podcast? This is Blockman Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And in 2021, we talked a lot about how we were going to do episodes that are good. Uh, but this we time we, to do it. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't accomplish that goal. But uh, I think this time around, we have a good shot at it. This is our new resolution for 2022: make good shit, not bad shit. Good shit. Yeah. Uh, no one really had suggested that before. It just popped into our heads around uh, around midnight, December 31st. So this is going to be a little bit different from our usual format. I'm basically just telling the story of uh, a guy named Alberto. Yep. Uh, no reason for that. Just a guy named Alberto. 
just a random guy I met named Alberto? Let's do that in a moment. First, I want to tell you a little story about uh, a computer science professor at the University of Washington named Stuart Regis. Do you, does that name ring any bells to you? Isn't he, he's like, I mean, I guess he wouldn't be bringing his name up on this podcast if he right. wasn't controversial somehow. No, he's just a great teacher. That's all. I just wanted to give him a shout out. <laughs> no, Stuart, so uh, teaches computer science. He's an instructor. He's untenured at UW. Um, he's an interesting guy. I He first came ac- across my radar in 2018. He wrote a piece in Quillette called Why Women don't code. Um, not at all inflammatory title there. And the piece was essentially defending James Damore, who was fired from Google for arguing arguing that the reason that there aren't more women in tech isn't because of oppression or discrimination, but because, according to Damore, women are just less interested in tech. And so the basic argument is basically that males tend to be more interested in things and ideas, and females tend to be more interested in people for various reasons, some cultural, some possibly biological. And- and it's it's not infallible, but there is some research suggesting this. And one of the more compelling findings is that in countries with more gender equality than the states, Afghanistan. you don't like Afghanistan uh, more than America. Ka, ka. Um, <laughs> how, do, how do you pronounce that? America. Ka, ka, ka. Um, you find in places with more gender equity, you don't find that like interests converge. You find, if anything, there's a bigger difference between what men and women are interested in on average. People struggle with on average. But right. on average, in places where women have, you would think, more freedom do, to do what they want, they're, it's not like they're all rushing to become computer programmers, which right. isn't dispositive, but is interesting. And it's, I think, legitimate research. So Stuart writes this piece, and it was a pretty big deal in Seattle. Uh, I wrote about it in The Stranger. The Seattle Times covered it. And the department naturally disavowed the piece. They, I think they posted something on Twitter. Students and faculty were pissed about it. Um, and Stuart was actually demoted and placed on probation for a year. And he's untenured, so he he like really put himself in a position where he could actually lose his job over this. And at, at one point – so. We might have talked about this on the show before, but at one point there was a student petition to get him fired from his job. And I read one of the testimonials, and I will say like a lot of this, the signatories of the of this petition were not actually stored students. But I read some of the testimonials, and one came from a, a student who had taken, I think, his intro to computer science course. And it was sort of inadvertently hilarious because there was this one line where this woman complained that in this intro to computer science course, Stuart used some sort of metaphor or comparison from Star Trek. And she said that this was discriminatory because women aren't interested in Star Trek. It's <laughs> a good way to prove your <laughs> interesting way to prove your point. I know, exactly. Okay, so he's not a guy who is afraid to like make waves. And he recently stirred up another wasp nest in in uh, University of Washington uh, <laughs> over land acknowledgments. So he he took a, a required Title IX training course, and Title IX is is federal law focused on sex discrimination. But for some reason, there was a large section during this training, according to Stewart, on land acknowledgments. So I don't know what the fuck that has to do with with Title IX, but instructors were encouraged to add land acknowledgments to their syllabi. And this wasn't required, but it was encouraged in the Allen School, which is where Stuart teaches, where the computer science department is. They put together a bunch of best practices from like a diversity committee for for, uh, composing one syllabi, and land acknowledgments were a part of that. as a side note, uh, I looked at this document yesterday, and the best the best practices also say that instructors should announce their pronouns, ask their students their pronouns, and they are to uh, quote try replacing you guys with folks, everyone, or y'all. And hilariously, they spelled y'all wrong, which is the clearest sign that this is cultural appropriation. What about mofos? <laughs> yeah, I think that's gender. No, wait, no, because it's short for motherfucker. 
You got mother. Oh, well, there. you can't say mother. So. Right, right. So what would be the equivalent of that? Uh, uterus haver, uterus haver fucker? <laughs> Birthing person Let's fucker? Let's move on. Katie, okay. I am okay. so above this culture war stuff and you just keep dragging me into it. Come on. Okay, so Stuart, he takes his Title IX training course and then he reads the best practices document and he decides to craft his own land acknowledgement for his syllabus. And he wrote oh, this the faculty. Is nice. I know. So he wrote the faculty listserv saying he was going to do this and asking for input. But uh, the the tactic his colleagues seemed to have taken with sort is just to ignore him, so no one responded. Um, and so he did it. And this is what his land acknowledgement said. I acknowledge that by the labor theory of property, the Coast Salish people can claim historical ownership of almost none of the land currently occupied by the University of Washington. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's super weird that uh, his colleagues did want, not want to help him with his, his very genuine attempt to write a uh, land acknowledgement. Okay, so it's a little bit confusing and it gets a little bit philosophical. But when he says the labor theory of property, he's referring to a principle that comes from John Locke, which is basically that ownership of land comes from working the land. So Stuart looked into the uni- university archives and he found that the land where the university stood was cleared by the university. And the university is old. It's, it was, I think it was founded in the early 1800s, like 1820 or something like that. And it was cleared by the university, so not by the Native Americans who had lived in the area. And so in this, like, according to the, you know, the labor theory of property, the Native Americans never own the land because the land ownership is conveyed by working the actual land. So, so I'm sure it didn't make any sense to his computer science students. Anyway, this and this is obviously not how land ownership currently works in the no. U.S. No, it also just some, doesn't. Well, there is some like there's like the Homestead Act was based on this based on this principle, but it's obviously not how land ownership works in the U.S. But his bigger point was that land acknowledgments are an inherently an expression of political opinion, and so he should be able to express his political opinion even if they don't align with the university's political opinion. So he puts this on a syllabus, and then when classes started this month, a few students noticed it and started complaining online on Twitter and on Reddit. And so the Allen School responded uh, to one student on Twitter. This is a quote from the Allen School. We became aware of this offensive statement a few hours ago. We're horrified by it and are working on getting it removed from the syllabus. Meanwhile, we have removed the document from the course website. So once again, he told the faculty LiveServe that he was going to do this and everyone ignored him. But then after he actually does it, the dean contacts him and, and told him to remove it himself. And he basically argued that if other faculty are allowed to make this political statement on their syllabus and he sees land acknowledgments as a political statement, which is kind of hard to argue with, that he should be allowed to do it as well. So he said no. And so the dean had the IT staff remove his syllabus from the university website uh, and then replace it with this. Note, the course syllabus has been temporarily removed due to offensive statements. We apologize for the inconvenience. Okay, so the next day, the dean... She had the IT staff put the syllabus back up with the land acknowledgement deleted, and then she emailed all of the students. This is what she said. Yesterday, it was brought to my attention that the CSE 143, that's the name of the course, syllabus contained an offensive statement under the heading of Indigenous Land Acknowledgement. I apologize for that. It is extremely important to me and other faculty in the Allen School that CS 143 and all of our classes be inclusive environments. We have now updated the course syllabus to remove this statement. So then on Friday, the school announced that they're opening a new section of the course with a different professor at the same time, and so students can transfer into that if they want, if they're so offended by I start trolling land acknowledgement. So he's been in touch with Fire and he's writing a pleas for Colette about this, which I'm sure will go over just as well as his first his first uh, piece for Colette did. Um, and last thing about this, 
so I might have mentioned this on a prior episode, but in 2019, I filed a few public records requests to find out what the department higher-ups were saying about Stuart. And I didn't hear back from the school for like a year. And then when they finally got back to me, they said that they would provide the documents by uh, July 27th, 2034. Well, I complained (laughs) about this and noted that this is illegal according to state law. And the first batch is now ready. So I should be getting them in a few weeks. Unfortunately, it will not be about land acknowledgements, but we should have some updates on on what they've been saying about Stuart Regis soon. I am... Look, I obviously – first of all, I'm excited for you to get those documents. I think there'll be some – hopefully some juicy stuff there. But I, I'm sort of having trouble – No, like I don't know who to root for in this particular iteration of their conflict because obviously the school overreacted and like pulling the syllabus down and issuing an apology is like everyone just needs to chill out. But I do think what he's doing is like so trolly and if you read it literally as a statement of his political beliefs, he he's saying that – if you occupy land, but you don't work it and someone comes and kicks you off it and then they work it, the the land belongs to them. Isn't that a plain reading of what he's saying? I mean, I guess, yes, according to this labor theory, theory of property. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you can like, I guess squatters rights maybe, but you can't just squat on the land. You have to like dig a garden. <laughs> All right. I just, I just, there's like so much trolling going on and so much. And it's like they're the, it's also a university administration is the easiest people to troll in the world because they're going to overreact to everything. Well, the students are apparently like feel really harmed by this. So I think it's also sort of a meta commentary on safetyism. And frankly, like what he's trying to do is push back on land acknowledgements. And I think that's valid. I mean, we make fun of them on this podcast. And so he's basically doing the same thing, just in a different, in a different form. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I guess like, oh God, I just, I, university administrators from whenever I've reported on them and how they respond to stuff like this, it's always so unhinged and it always seems almost designed to increase their role and to have to bring in more consultants and investigate more stuff. It's like, I almost wish he could just ignore the land acknowledgement thing, which, which wasn't mandatory and that the university could just ignore the trolling, I guess. Well, nobody's going to ignore it now. No one's going to ignore anything. I think that's basically his point is that ignoring it doesn't actually do anything. It just, it's like being passive. Um, this one thing that I tell you might change your change your mind and put you in the, the camp of Stuart Regis. Uh, he assigned your book to his class. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I hope he has a long <laughs> career there because I think his uh, assignments alone could like quadruple sales. So. <laughs> All right. Should we get to Alberta? Yeah, this is sort of an involved story, but I, I find it really interesting, and it just sort of touches on a lot of uh, themes we talk about on this podcast a lot. Okay, so Alberto uh, Galaba Jr. is 39 years old. He's a lecturer at UC Irvine and a graduate of the MFA program in fiction there. So like uh, YA? No, this is actually uh, about adult fiction, but it's related. Okay, so he's a young writer, not a young adult writer. <laughs> well, yeah, young yeah, She's 39. Yeah. I guess that's oh, our that's age not, range. We're very, not. we're incredibly yeah. young. God, you know, uh, as an aside, I keep getting like Facebook friends requests from middle-aged people. And then I realize they're people I graduated from high school with. I think, yeah, not, I think young might not. That. Yeah. We yeah. are babies. We yeah. are literally babies. Alberto is a baby professor. <laughs> okay. Baby okay. professor. Got it. So this is actually adult fiction, but it's it's related. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, so I, I've written a few pieces about the social justice blowups in the young adult world, and friend of the podcast, Kat Rosenfield, wrote the best piece on that subject. Uh, that ran in Vulture in 2017. It's called The Toxic Drama of YA Twitter. Everyone should read it because it just explains this whole world. We'll put a link the, in the show notes. We shall. 
These are fairly complicated stories that are often hard to sum up, but a lot of them have to do with the question of who is allowed to say what. So one side of it is that there's a lot of scrutiny of white authors and and a lot of pressure to make sure they stay in their lanes, which is something you and I always do because it's very important to stay in your lane. Absolutely. Uh, If you're a white author- It's like a bowling thing. Yeah. You, well, I put up those sort of guardrails so that if I get outside my lane, <laughs> sure I, I, I bounce back, bounce back the toward white, white Jewishness. Uh, yeah. So in, in the YA world, if you're a white author and you write about any non-white character, you're likely to face some heat from someone online. Like book bloggers are notoriously like active and, and trying to take other people down for crimes against social justice. And they will claim that you did something wrong and that your writing is harmful. So yeah, there's just sort of endless accusations of racism. Well, I mean, nobody would make a false accusation of racism, right? No, 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 never. Uh, <laughs> no, the stuff gets really ridiculous. So in some cases, like angry Twitter or Tumblr or Goodreads critics, Goodreads is like the biggest uh, social media site for, for book books, you rate books, you review them, but these critics will take the like the utterance of a racist character out of context and use it as evidence that the author is racist. So it's like if I wrote a blog post about Hitler's anti-Semitism and someone quoted it to argue that by quoting Hitler, I was endorsing his views, it's like really that dumb. Well, just to be clear, you do endorse Hitler's views, right? I know, but that's totally separate. I'm saying okay. if in this particular blog a- post, I did. Yeah, exactly. Okay, just bad example, but we get it. So it's definitely not just right white writers who are targeted. I'll, I'll, it's basically anyone who, quote unquote, strays outside their lane. I'll include links in the show notes to stories I wrote about Emily Zhao and Kosoko Jackson. These are two authors who aren't white and who faced absolutely ridiculous pylons. Uh, Zhao's book was was delayed significantly and Jackson's was just canceled together altogether after it was done. So these are like they come across as internet slap fights, but they're pretty high stakes in terms of like who gets book deals, whose books are canceled and so forth. There's another side of this that I don't think has gotten as much attention, but I think it's pretty important. And that is that as far as I can tell within young adult fiction, there's been more and more pressure on non-white authors to write about their own identities and how they feel oppressed and to sort of like color within the lines in that sense. Well, what if they don't actually feel oppressed? Do they have to fake it? Katie, all non-white people feel oppressed all the time. I thought you were on Twitter. Right. right. <laughs> True. The, that's what Except sort with of- With one exception, Camille Foster. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't have a race. So that's right, true. That's deep true. cut, uh, fifth column humor will lose us our audience. <laughs> anyway, that's what's sort of uncomfortable about this. So obviously the non-white label includes literally billions of people. And they have a wide range of views on their own identities and whether they face discrimination, all that stuff. But the more I wrote about this YA stuff uh, and the more folks from that world I corresponded with, the more I realized that editors and agents and these editors and agents appear to be overwhelmingly white and from privileged backgrounds because that's who ends up with the good gatekeeping jobs in publishing. They were basically telling writers of color to lean into their oppression and to only write from their own background. That sounds really healthy. (laughs) I I eventually solicited emails from folks who were frustrated with young adult craziness. I basically said anyone in this world who wants to sort of anonymously reach out to me and tell me what's going on. And I got a number of emails from writers of color. One of them sent me a screenshot of a rejection from an agent, which read in part, quote, if you happen to write another book with a male protagonist, preferable hashtag own voices. And if you aren't represented by someone else by that time, I would be glad to read it. Do you know what um, own voices is? Um, Explain it. Own voices basically means a story with a protagonist of 
X racial or identity group where the author in real life also has that identity. So this... Does that include yeah. white people as well? Well, they, they wouldn't call white white a white story own voices, but is that because I guess of technically. The, is that because of the connotation with slave owning? <laughs> no? I guess so. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but the point is, if you actually translate this from online speak, this agent is telling someone, like, imagine if it's a black person, yeah, I'd be interested in anything you write about a black character, which is not, <laughs> it's not, it's actually offensive. And it doesn't take a lot of, like, pouring over the tea leaves to see why that's offensive. Right, right. So, in other words, right, you're Indian, write about an Indian guy. If you're black, write about a black guy. And this agent and other agents have explicitly said that's what we're looking for. Are Jews immune from this? Because Jews straddle and what about Jews like, like blow Hispanic- up the whole system right what about hispanic whites or, or yeah trump supporting hispanic whites yeah. which millions. <laughs> I, so the same author I, I thought he really nicely summed up what's going on uh in an email he wrote me so i'm just going to read a bit of it directly quote i think the biggest thing i resent is that being told to stay in my lane for me apparently means writing about a country i wasn't born in have only the vaguest connection to or knowledge about and doesn't particularly interest me I'd much rather write about the Roman Empire or the Diadochi states, I don't know what that is, after the collapse of Alexander's empire, but it's clear they want a very specific kind of own voices from me rather than letting me write about whatever I feel like. The irony of mostly white women telling me the kind of diversity they want aside, if they really wanted to amplify diverse voices, they'd probably be better served going and translating books from other countries that are written in their native language and selling them in the U.S. market. Uh, dot, 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 cutting forward a little, jumping forward a little. It just seems to me like these crusades for literary purity are getting worse and worse, and there's no real self-reflection on what it means when your movement to bring about diversity destroys minority writers you're supposedly trying to support. Yeah, but they're all doing it to diversify the industry, Jesse. It is all for the right reasons, especially the pylons that destroy young writers of color. In other cases, you might see this. You know, there's a lot of talk about the white supremacy and things like publishing or media. I think the the term is overstated, uh, but this does seem like this does seem pretty racist. Mostly white people telling people of color or anybody else what they can write about. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to jump to that accusation, but if you're a white editor from a privileged background and you're telling non-white writers, I'd like you to write, a, like really think through what it means to be black and write about your identity. At the very least, I think we can agree that that is um, problematic, which is our favorite word to use on the show because it's a very meaningful word. But also anti-racist at the same time. <laughs> problematic and yet anti-racist. It's anti-racist, neo-racist, and problematic. <laughs> so within these professional networks, they're getting more and more like circular firing squad this is still within young adult we're talking the pressure to not be one of the bad ones uh helping to spread racism with your writing it can get super intense and you'll just see people acting in such a careful calculating manner to jump on pylons or to stay quiet and not defend their friends there's one story i'll never forget and i I just want to tell this one before we get to alberto um i'm going to read directly from an archived article page on publishers weekly which is of course the biggest uh, trade publication for book publishers publishers weekly subsequently retracted the article for very strange reasons i wrote about i'll put links to the archived article and my coverage of the controversy in the show notes but here's what it said 
Alexandra Duncan has canceled her young adult novel Ember Days mere days after its cover reveal on Bookpage. That's a book site. An hour after Duncan posted the cover reveal for the book, which was slated for a March 2021 release from Green Willow Books, an imprint of HarperCollins, to her Twitter feed, author Bethany C. Morrow questioned the representation within the novel, which was noted in the book's description, quote, Naomi is the granddaughter of a powerful Gullah Conjure woman sent to Charleston to combat an evil force circling the city and hiding in plain sight as Deirdre's protege, end quote. Morrow said via tweet, quote, I'm immediately concerned about an apparently white author not only writing a Gullah character, a very underrepresented and erased people group, but then writing about a Conjure woman. And how what? She is, quote, hiding in plain sight, end quote. That's the end of um, Morrow's tweet. Duncan immediately acknowledged Morrow's concern, responding, quote, I definitely struggled with whether it was okay for me to write about a culture outside my own and especially about the difficult topic of passing, which Naomi does for part of the book while going undercover in an all-white magical society, end quote. Further explaining that her decision to write from the perspective of a character with Gullah Geechee heritage stemmed from an interest in writing about folk magic traditions from, quote, her area of the South, end quote. Can I, can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah. So just for people who aren't aware, Gullah is basically a, uh, a people from the low country of, of South Carolina, pr- prim- primarily South Carolina, although also Georgia, Florida, and a little bit of North Carolina, descendant of slaves, very interesting dialect, um, sort of a mix of Creole, English, and, and other other languages, very interesting foods. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what Gullah Geechee is. Gotcha. Um, so... She canceled her book basically immediately within days of this tweet. Think about the process it goes through. You have to go through to come up with a book idea, research it, go through multiple drafts, find and a write publisher. write a fucking write. Just write. I mean, I haven't written a book, but I've written a book proposal. Writing a book proposal is that's like it's like a hundred pages of work. Well, fiction's different because you write the whole manuscript, oh, but okay. it's the same deal. Gotcha. It's just a huge yeah. amount. It's a huge yeah. amount of work. And and Green Willow Books, an imprint of Harper Collins, that's a big deal. Uh, one person on Twitter tweeted, I have, I have problems with this without reading the book. So that was it for the book. If You see a lot of denialism that anything weird is going on in liberal circles. Before getting on this, we were talking about someone who annoys both of us. And their, this person's shtick is to say, you know, there's no such thing as cancel culture. We can set aside that term. It's silly. But, but to look at a situation like this where someone immediately falls on their own sword and cancels their own book because like a person tweeted at them – uh, it it's really bizarre, and it I think it's safe to say that that's really corrosive to good writing and good art. I mean, you're obviously right about this. That was a very weird and stupid thing to do, in part because you just shouldn't give people like this power. But what does this have to do with uh, your new friend, Alberto? Is he Gullah so, Geechee? <laughs> yes, that's not a very Gullah Geechee name. We are outing him as Gullah Geechee. Um, so for a while, I'd heard some anecdotes suggesting that these attitudes were starting to infect the world of adult literary fiction. Oftentimes, when you hear these stories about like what's going on within publishing offices, you can't tell them because you'll get someone in trouble for spreading these stories around. Then over the summer, I got put in touch with this guy, Alberto. And I think his story of attempting to get published uh, in the adult fiction world is really, really interesting and really telling. It, it shows us just how tangled a concept race can be and how limited an understanding of it many agents and editors and publishers in New York publishing have. All right. So tell us Alberto's story. Okay. So one more time. This is Alberto. Wait, wait, wait. This is not, this doesn't count as own voices because you're telling, you're telling Alberto's story. So we're, this is- we're violating the own voices principle right now. This is not an own voices podcast, except when I'm talking about like Hanukkah or something. <laughs> or when you're talking, or when about, you're talking about assembly Ikea furniture. 
All right, go ahead. All right, so one more time. Alberto Gulaba Jr., G-U-L-L-A-B-A, 39 years old, lecturer at UC Irvine. Uh, He was born in Hawaii, and as he put it... I'm one of the few people that can say uh, he grew up on a plantation. This was a sugar plantation where his dad worked cutting sugar cane. Uh, It's mom's Filipino too, but from a somewhat different background. He's a city boy from Manila, and she was from the province, uh, very rural, working on farms. So his dad worked there as a sugarcane cutter for about seven years, at which point he changed course and joined the army. As a result, the family left Hawaii. Like a lot of military brats, Alberto lived all over the place. Colorado, North Carolina, Virginia, Washington State, pit stops in, in California. And his dad has a very successful military career, especially for someone from his background. Well, he w- would eventually be deployed in Iraq, uh, the, the latest Iraq war. Uh, but, you know, he enlisted um, and he eventually joined the 82nd Airborne's and he eventually worked his way into the special forces. And so, you know, <laughs> this is a very, very highly professional soldier. And he got pretty far for an enlisted guy. And later on in his career, uh, he deployed to Iraq and, you know, he was kicking down doors over there. His dad, through the army, works toward a college degree uh, at what Alberto described as basically a diploma mill. And I remember I'm in elementary school and my dad would make me check his essays on Hemingway. And I would be reading these essays and I'm like, dad, man, this is so embarrassing. Like your grammar is awful. And you keep repeating yourself over and over and over again. He's like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I just got to get to page three. I told Alberto that this struck me as a sign that he'd be a writer himself. (laughs) That's a stretch, Jesse. Get out of here, man. So Alberto is not a fan of like overly pat storylines or oversimplified bullshit, which as we'll see, ends up causing him some problems. It's actually in high school in his telling when some of his writerly tendencies really start to emerge. We would have my sophomore year, we had this voice of democracy speech contest. I forget what the prompt was, but I just remember being good at writing and performing speeches and speaking publicly. And, you know, I, I, I was kind of good at it. Right. But, you know, really I was, kind of performing and and trying to tell jokes and trying to be funny for my friends, you know, because so much of high school was just performing skits and goofing around and, you know, BSing your way through. And, you know, I felt, you know, I felt I had a knack for it. So anyway, let's fast forward through his childhood a little so this episode doesn't turn out to be 10 hours long. Uh, Alberto is a good enough student to get into UVA, University of Virginia, one of the best public universities in the country. He moves to Charlottesville and arrives on campus feeling pretty confident uh, he'd be able to adjust to campus life at a, as a public ivy, as they're called. But he wasn't prepared for one aspect of it. You know, growing up on military bases, you you kind of live that multicultural dream, you know, diversity. You got people from all over the country, all over the world, immigrants, people born here in the States, all different colors. Minorities are overrepresented in the military and the army in particular. So you're constantly meeting, you know, all kinds of people. But when I got to college, you know, I, I, I went in believing, okay, I've met every type of person. But when I got to college, I think that was my first time 
meeting rich people. UVA also somewhat rejiggered Alberto's understanding of race in America. I remember even the minorities being rich because growing up, you, you, you're kind of led to believe that, you know, you know, us minorities, we got to stick together. We, you know, we, we just don't have as much. Uh, we have a rougher go at life. And, you know, a lot of that is true. Uh, but that was my first time meeting and being around wealthy minorities. And, you know, it was just strange. You know, here I am believing that I had met every single kind of person. You know, I was 17 at the time, 18. Uh, but there was this whole class of people that I had no clue about. Alberto said that he took a lesson from his dad when it came to figuring out his place in Charlottesville. I mean, one thing I learned from my dad is that, you know, he he has an accent. And he kind of used that to his advantage because you talk to people with accents and people begin to think you're dumb because you have an accent. And so I, I grew up seeing how he let people come to conclusions about him, about how smart he was or things he noticed. But, you know, he was really in control of the situation. Not to say I was like manipulating people or anything, but, you know, I was, I was happy, you know, to play this fish out of water. I was happy to be, you know, a, a clown of sorts. And, you know, meanwhile, I was processing everything and it was just tremendously strange to me. Uh, but I was happy to play my role. Um, were people treating me well? Yeah, I, I got along with people. Um, the thing that I noticed is that, you know, you grow up as a young person and, you know, in high school, you know, there to be a young person meant to rebel. But when you get to college, you, you meet some of the biggest conformists I had ever met in my life. I mean, these people were, were dressing and behaving and talking like middle-aged people, 18 years old. And it was just very strange to me. Alberto said people were perfectly nice to him his first year, but that he just didn't really feel like a part of the student body. And he didn't feel much of a sense of connection to the white kids he was living with. And I remember a profound sense of regret my first year at UVA. It's like, I was like, you know, I'm getting along with people, but, you know, the culture shock of just being in such a preppy school, I was like, man, I, I need a, <laughs> I need a scene where, where I fit in. Katie, I have to ask, have you ever interacted with like real prepsters? Cause I just, that's a funny idea, like thing for me to imagine. No, I don't, not real <laughs> ones. I mean, there were like, obviously there were like, we called them, there was like a clique in my school called preps, but like I grew up in rural North Carolina you know, the richest person in town was like the dentist. They owned one pig. <laughs> Their bathroom was and the pig was the, the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've never, I've never been around like real money. Well, let's start a charity to get you uh, connected to like, <laughs> preppy some, people. Some people with sailboats. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was. I'm sure Boston had a lot of like real money, right? Real rich yeah, people. well, that's the thing, and there's differences between old money and new money. I, I mostly grew up around new Podcast money. Podcast money podcast money. But then for two years, I went to like a preppy middle school with like old money. It's just a whole different culture and uh, subject for another day. Okay. So last thing Alberto said was he needed a scene where he fit in and he found that scene pretty randomly. Uh, sophomore year, 
at UVA, a lot of students live off grounds. That's pretty preppy. They call it the grounds. Uh, that's what it's called. They're often able to rent nice places because they have family money. Alberto didn't think he could do that. So he starts worrying about what he's going to do for housing sophomore year. A lot of his social life came from playing intramural sports. And one day he asked a black friend who he did in intramurals with what his housing situation was going to be. The friend said he was living on grounds. So Alberto was like, hey, why don't we live together? They did, and they ended up in an apartment complex that turned out to be something of a black enclave for UVA students. And, you know, thus begins my journey, um, living amongst uh, black men, being in that community, running in those circles. And, you know, from being in the military, you're, you're, you're constantly moving, you're jumping in and out of different peer groups. There's a lot of diversity you know, on and around the military base. So that was, you know, more or less a natural move for me, um, you know, to live with whatever color. <laughs> so I didn't see the big deal. I should say that Alberto sent me a, uh, a pretty amazing Facebook photo from this time of all of them basically like shirtless. And it's just, you imagine the most stereotypical college males possible. And that's sort of who they were. Um, in the process of, of this living situation, Alberto starts to realize that the black kids at UVA and members of the some of the other minority groups sort of existed in their own world. I mean, literally, uh, this apartment complex was on the outskirts. And so I guess that's really symbolic of, of I guess, the minority student experience, or at least the black student experience as I saw it at UVA. So did Alberto say that there was that discrimination against these students? I mean, if they live sort of uh, apart from the white part of the university. What he experienced was like a little bit more subtle. It was a sort of um, ghettoization of, of some of the minority students. I think one of the tensions or one of the things that I noticed uh, going to school was that how, how college was marketed to a minority. I mean, the pitch was this, you know, we, we know it's very lonely to be a minority in this huge white school. Don't sweat it. We have people belonging to your ethnic or racial group here. You will, we'll slide you right in here into this comfortable cocoon and we can minimize your contact with white people as much as possible. And that was actually a selling point, right? We have, you know, um, you know, a separate, we have a major for you. Uh, we have all these events for you. Um, we have a support network catered to you. So Alberto pointed out that UVA has a very high black graduation rate. And I checked on this and for what it's worth, UVA does seem to tout this fact, like lots of old press releases. And especially for first generation college students, like a huge issue is retention because basically if you're not from a background that prepared you for college college can be a pretty big shock the the quantity of work required the level it's required of you so this is like anyone who studies sort of higher ed and inequality knows that a lot of kids just fall off the college track after being in college itself so you know i think this is probably part of uva's appeal for kids who can get in there and their families but Alberto said there was sort of like this downside to the way UVA marketed itself to these groups specifically. And so I guess the formula worked, right? Providing a home away from home, a racial home away from home. Um, you know, something that got 
you know, black students graduated year in, year out, and you saw the other kind of uh, races and other ethnicity based programs trying to copy that model, you know, the Asian student experience, Hispanic student experience, all trying to replicate that model. And it made for a very, I guess, um, balkanized campus. Okay. So like the white kids are hanging out together. The black kids are hanging out with the black kids. The Latino kids are hanging out the, the Latino kids. The Latinx kids are hanging out with the Latinx kids, et cetera. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. To a certain extent, yes. And, and Alberto says that as college continues, these differences in people's backgrounds start to become really important and to have a big impact. You have guys for whatever reason, you know, complicated reasons, many of which are rooted in history that it's, you know, it's hard to, to succeed and you, you get thrown into college and let's say maybe you're a little behind, maybe you need some remedial work or what have you, but you're thrown in with these, with these academic killers, right? You're failing, you're not doing as well, you're trying as hard as possible to keep your head above water, and people are just breezing through, and that, and that's incredibly discouraging. It's like, what's wrong with me? Do I belong here? And a lot of the time, these are kids who are not from the same sorts of privileged backgrounds as the more successful UVA students. They aren't the sons and daughters of senators or mayors or whatever, and it's not like whatever pre-existing issues they were dealing with as teenagers dissipated as soon as they entered Charlottesville. You're also dealing with a lot of young men, very, very macho guys, substance abuse, you know, wanting, you know, drunk high, wanting to test themselves against other young men. So, you know, there was a lot of scrapping. But, yeah, it was just, you know, to get through to the finish line you know, it is quite, quite an ordeal. Okay. So what about Alberto? Did he do okay in school? Yeah, I did. I, did, I kept my head down and I worked and I stayed out of trouble and I did well. I did well. But for a lot of his friends and buddies, it, it just isn't that easy. College isn't that easy. They've got a lot of stuff going on, heavy stuff. Court cases, jail, I mean, for starters, right? Um, I just remember guys just, you know, just dropping in and out, changing majors a lot. But as far as kind of outside events, yeah, definitely, you know, legal issues. A lot, a lot of legal issues. So, yeah, the legal issues ran the gamut, and a lot of them were things that weren't that serious. Um, you know, you can have missed court dates, you can have weed charges, especially because this is a while ago, stuff like that. There were a few sort of more serious things that Alberto like was a little bit hesitant to have us talk about publicly on the podcast. We sort of went off the record a little bit, but you can basically just imagine the difference between kids who on top of the pressures of college are dealing with court challenges and those who don't have any challenges to deal with on that front. Okay. His uh, So Alberto's final semester of college, one of his buddies has an older brother who's a film student, and he's also living in Alberto's apartment with him and his other roommates. And he says, hey, we could write a screenplay. We should come up with some ideas. I had taken some creative writing classes at UVA, 
And actually, you know, one of the things I learned in, in creative writing was that you want to search out the contradiction. That's the story. Find the contradiction. And as the story unfolds, the contradiction will resolve itself. And that always stuck in my head. And so my buddy is like, okay, let's write a screenplay. And so I'm thinking of like, okay, I got to find some sort of contradiction. And so you're sitting in the apartment <laughs> and you're looking around and there's all this kind of like weed smoking and pe people playing Madden and just open canisters of alcohol. And I remember this, I just, it flashed in my head, university thugs, you know, just an oxymoron. And I remember telling my buddy, Hey, I got this great idea for a screenplay. Let's do university thugs. And his reaction was like, oh, man, that's stupid. <laughs> that's such a dumb idea. Get out of here. So Alberto can't really shake the idea. Like, it, it sticks with him for years. I mean, books like this don't get written. I mean, you know, you, you grow up thinking that. It's like, oh, this is so silly. But it just it just hung around in my head. It's like, oh, you know, university thugs. Right? Wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be interesting? And, you know, and, and I guess with the writing thing, I had started taking, you know, I was actually a political science major, um, but I think at UVA, they call it government and foreign affairs. And, you know, I was planning to go to law school, but I would take these, you know, fiction writing classes on the side. And the reason I took them was because they were easy because I ran into a buddy at the library. I was like, Hey man, what, what are you doing? And he's like, Oh, I got this fiction writing class. I was like, Oh, interesting. What's the reading like? Because, you know, political science, we have to read 50 to 100 pages a week per class. And he's like, all you got to do is read these two short stories. I was like, short stories? How short can they be? He's like, nah, they're only like 15 pages. I was like, what? I get to read two of those per week? Are you kidding? And I was like, okay, what's the catch? What's, what's the writing requirement? He's like, oh, you got to write these two short stories. I was like, how long are those, 15 pages? It's like, yeah. But when, when you think about it, it's like, at the time, I was like, 15 pages. I mean, you, you could hit return a lot if there's a lot of dialogue. And so I was like, okay, I think I could hack it. And so I had set in my mind, I got to take one of these easy fiction writing classes. And I got in and I was like, you know, it turns out I was good at it. I'm, I'm the kind of person who's suspicious about compliments. And, you know, I'm like the only minority there. There's all these white people. And I thought, okay, they just kind of feel sorry for me. They're just being nice to me um, saying, okay, this is great. But, you know, I kept on taking these classes and, I, you know, I began to realize, OK, maybe I'm OK at this. Maybe I'm OK at this. But his writing aspirations would have to wait a little while. He graduates from UVA. He moves to Miami. He does Teach for America there for three years. Randomly, it is a wine class that gets him back on a writing track. A wine class? Yep. OK, please explain that. My girlfriend at the time, wife now, she was going to go to pharmacy school. And so she had to take classes at a local community college and she had this one wine class. And I was like, okay, I'll go to this wine class with you. What the hell? And it's like, I just, I took a liking to this wine class. I was raising my hand. I was participating, even though I wasn't on the official roster. And I was saying to myself, you know, maybe I should head to school, back to school for some reason. And you're kind of searching through, okay, what can I do? I, I got to be back in school. I'm good at the school thing. 
And by that point, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I, I don't want that life. And then searching through, okay, things that I'm good at. So, okay, maybe, maybe this writing thing, maybe I'm good at it. And you start applying to programs and then they start letting you in. And then you say to yourself, okay, maybe I am good if some of these top programs are, are saying yes to me. So he gets into the University of Iowa, which is, I think, the most prestigious fiction MFA program in the country. But Alberto's then girlfriend, now wife, uh, understandably, isn't thrilled about the prospect of moving to Iowa. So they end up picking UC Irvine, and he starts in 2007. You want to arrive with a project, right? You want to show everyone, okay, I'm a serious writer. I have this project that I intend to complete here. And I'm looking around. I was like, man, I'm, you know, I could write about growing up in Hawaii. I could write about, you know, growing up in the mil- as a military brat. But then I was like, hey, you know what? This university, this silly university thugs idea. Why don't I just submit something? And let, let's see. I had never worked on it, but I was like, well, why don't I play around with this idea? It'll be a little silly. It'll be fun. And, you know, I started turning in chapters of a book for it. And I got a good response. And I was like, okay, let's do Let's do university thugs. Let's do this. He works on it during school and he graduates in 2010 thinking he's maybe a couple months away from being done with university thugs. And he connects with an agent, which is a crucial early step toward eventually getting published. It's just, it's really hard to get published uh, a first time without an agent, but something just doesn't feel right to him about the book in its present form. You know, there's something off about this book. There's something missing. And, you know, I had to say, you know, agent, I just, you know, just give me a second. I'm, this isn't ready yet. So he sets it aside and uh, he works on it some more. And Jesse, have you read this book? Yeah. Yeah. I read the version he sent me uh, over the fall. Okay. Um, Maybe late ta- summer. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about what it's about just so we like can picture this here? Yeah. So it's told from various points of view. The main point of view um I think the main one is a kid named Titus Stevenson. He's trying to graduate from UVA despite legal troubles of his own. This is toward the end of their college experience. His best friend is a guy named Vonnie who has his own issues going on among the money problems and a a fairly addictive and self-destructive personality. And then Titus's on again, off again girlfriend is a half Puerto Rican, half white girl named Brooke. Uh, And there's some other characters too. Um, I, I thought it was really good. I'm a little bit biased because I like Alberto and I, I think he has an interesting story. And I think that definitely shades how we view fiction. But I just thought the characters came across as incredibly real, like sometimes claustrophobically so. Like you you, you really get inside their head and you feel their frustration and desperation and, and ambition in this really visceral way. There's this one sequence that really jumped out at me involving Vani. He's a sequence where nothing happens. He has his big assignment due and he can't focus. He can't get his work done. All he does is play Madden and masturbate and get high and order pizza. We've all been there. We've all been there. It sounds like a pretty good life. No, it sounds silly that like a scene like that would be compelling, but it, it really is because of Alberto's ability to drag us inside these characters' lives and just sort of like leave us there. And he captures that feeling of just being trapped in yourself and trapped by your own habits and dispositions or by your past. And I thought it was a really, really good book. And I, it, it felt authentic. That's a tricky word, but it did. Uh, what do I know? But it felt authentic to me. And um, 
I guess the only other thing I'd say about it is that it, it's a lot more character driven than plot driven to oversimplify. But I also thought it really handled like racial politics in elite settings in a, in quite a deft way. So the uh, the half Puerto Rican girl, she has upper middle class ambitions and, and she has her shit more together than the male characters. And she wants to go into the nonprofit world in New York. And there's these really subtle but cringeworthy scenes where she realizes that to a lot of her white classmates uh, – and to people in the nonprofit world, she's basically a mascot. She has this identity characteristic, half Puerto Rican, that can be beneficial. And they're sort of seeing her in that light instead of seeing her uh, for for herself. So I think what I like the most about the book is that like nothing in University Thugs is simple. I, I'm This is like my trademark. I'm the it's complicated guy. But I felt like the book really tickled that part of my brain. It was very, you know, messy and human. And I'm assuming that uh, Titus and Vani are black. Yeah, Titus is black. Uh, Vani is half black, half Korean. Okay, so I guess I could see how in this, according to the new rules, that might be problematic. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and during my conversation with Alberto, we got to talk about that question of sort of reinforcing negative stereotypes about a group. And, and there was even one instance in grad school where where a classmate of his who was black accused him of doing that. And Alberto really rejected the idea that writers should worry that much about that sort of thing. I mean, I, I'm not sure I understand, you know, the idea of stereotypes. I mean, I think we're talking about, yeah, it's just a strange thing. You know, this, this talk of stereotypes and, and once you kind of buy into that framing, you know, let's say as an artist, as a fiction writer, then you, you begin to kind of outsmart yourself. So, I'm, you know, you begin to make choices. Oh, I'm, I'm going to flout all the stereotypes. I'm just going to cut across the grain in every way. And you end up writing something that is so divorced from reality that the reader will just have a you know hard time connecting because you're, you're trying to, you're actively avoiding, you know, what is, what is life? What is life for a lot of people? I mean, a, a lot of people do engage in certain behaviors, dress a certain way, talk a certain way. And they certainly don't think of themselves as conforming to stereotypes. Maybe they do. But when I think about stereotypes you know, bandied about as an epithet, I, I detect a lot of classism there, right? So, you know, the, the norms and, and the culture of, of people who aren't from the ruling class, you know, the ruling class, I think, is, is ashamed. He says, oh, no, 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 no. These are just stereotypical portrayals. But, you know, it's like, you know, I just see the people just being people. When I asked him to unpack that idea of shame a little bit, he he jumped back to, to his time in Teach for America. I mean, as a as a person who you know spent a couple of years in Teach for America, you know, working in an inner city community, you know, trying to make a difference, trying to there's a lot of work to be done. Right? Helping people get a fair shake in society. And so much of, of the conversation among, you know, the, the chattering classes, you know, take us away from the reality of, of, of poor minorities and their very basic needs, you know, academic outcomes, K through 12, 
reading proficiency, math proficiency, crime, safety, health. You know, I feel that the people are just falling so far behind. And, you know, I, I, I detect, you know, shame that, okay, we're not doing as good a job as, as we could be. And anything that, that kind of reminds them of, of that might manifest itself in other ways. Um, you know, of course, this is all mind reading. <laughs> you know, this could be full of shit. But, yeah, that's, that's just the sense I get. I don't know. My, my, my spider sense is tingling. So yeah, this just reminded me of sort of like the difference between symbolic allyship and like actually caring about a group and how it's doing. It's, I did, it reminded me a little bit of when like, you're like, oh, this group, poor black and Latino kids aren't doing as well as standardized tests. So instead of saying, wow, we're really screwing up the way we educate these kids. We need to give them more help. Get rid of the test. Yeah. And that's like, I think that's sort of what he's getting at with the stereotype thing. It's like, if you want to capture a group's experience authentically, that might involve talking about the way they talk and the way they act and, and some of the stuff that happens when you're from a rough upbringing and you're not really caring about that group to paper over that stuff. Do you, do well, you find that compelling? Yeah. I mean, it's like treating people as though they're humans, actual humans who are all flawed in different ways rather than treating them as, uh, you know, mythical beings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Alberto here was definitely influenced by his time in, Teach for America, which I think most of our listeners have probably heard of, but this is, you know, uh, college graduates often from really good schools go into low income schools and teach there for for two or three years. I, I and then they leave and go this. back to, and then go back <laughs> and then they go Harvard. work for Goldman Sachs. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. It looks really good on your resume when you're trying to get into grad school at Harvard. Yes, I should say there are people who do teach for America and then stay in the education or nonprofit world, but is definitely a uh, resume builder. Yeah, there are also there are programs. I have a friend who did an MFA at Duke, and uh, her her tuition was essentially free if she would teach for a couple of years at inner city schools in Durham, which she did for like exactly two years. Got the education written off, and then and then left the field entirely. Yeah. Um, so I do think this helps to understand where Alberto is coming from uh, with with this book. Okay, so this whole time he's tinkering with the book, trying to figure out why it's not working. Yeah, and it's a struggle to get there because, like, he, you know, he doesn't like the novel and he can't quite figure out why he doesn't like the novel and why he doesn't think it's ready. But then he has this sort of important but counterintuitive realization. One of the choices I made was don't worry about sounding good, right? Because, you know, you write literary fiction and so there's some sort of expectation that the language will be beautiful and elevated. And I figured out that that was at odds with the, with the characters who kind of speak plainly, some say crudely, who, you know, don't think in complete sentences all the time. And a lot of the scenes, they're under the influence of substances or, or, these men just don't have the language of graduate students to process whatever they're going through emotionally, spiritually, you know? So I said to myself, okay, you know, get, get the writer's ego. Don't worry about being called some 
sensitive, beautiful writer. Tell it straight. Get out of the way. Just just show the people, show the thoughts. You know, let let it happen and get out of the way. And so I guess the writing became a lot more crude in, in certain respects, but also became more dynamic. I feel like this gets back to Alberto's uh, obsession with honesty and with not dressing things up for the sake of what people expect of like, quote unquote, sophisticated fiction. He also realizes there's too much testosterone in the book. So cue the, um, you know, the female lead I mentioned, who's a really good character. She really helps soften some of the books, rougher, more hyper-masculine edges. And uh, all this rewriting and revising helps him get the novel into good enough shape that he gets back in touch with that agent. He sends it into the agent and the agent loves it. Raw, incandescent, you know, all, all these, you know, it's always nice to be told that you're pretty. You've been waiting at the bar a long time. <laughs> and this guy said, yeah, you're pretty. You got something, kid. Obviously, an agent liking your book doesn't mean it's going to sell, but it's a very good sign for reasons Alberto explained to me. In the world of fiction, an agent does not make their money until they can sell a manuscript to an editor, to a publisher. And so when we're talking fiction, you can't sell a book based off a pitch a sample chapter, an outline, the whole work has to be done. And these days it has to be like pretty much finished, polished in terms of proofreading, editing, big revision. It basically has to be done. And so when an agent, you know, says, I will represent your book, there's this strong belief that, okay, I can sell this. And the agent is a very successful one you know, large stable of successful award-winning writers, very busy. And so for him to say, okay, I'll represent this book. I know editors who would, who would purchase this. And so when they say they're going to represent your book, of course, there's some, some things they want you to polish up and change, you know, some structural things, things that were unclear. So anytime that agent puts into working with the author, you know, polishing up the book, readying up the book, that's time spent for free, right? So they're not just being nice. They really expect, okay, I'm going to sell this. I'm going to make some money on this. I'm going to remodel my kitchen, right? These are professionals, very busy people. And I had a lot of contact, a lot of revision notes uh, structurally. I mean, it's a, it's, there's a lot of characters in the book. It's a long book. It's 400 pages. You know, it's really ambitious in terms of style and I I think scope. It's very different. And he was, you know, very willing to represent it, very excited about how it kind of challenged, I guess, expectations of the quote unquote campus novel. And I got a lot of attention from him. And the sense was, was that, okay, we're going to line up all the editors. We're going to get a bidding war going. I mean, this is a guy, this isn't his first rodeo. and you know, he's lining up the editors and he's got the whole thing kind of plotted out a couple steps ahead. And so I'm getting very excited. So for what it's worth, nonfiction is a little bit different because you do a proposal rather than a manuscript, but it's that same logic where if an agent is willing to spend a lot of time working on your proposal with you, that's a good sign because he's, he's giving you that work for free. So Anyway, this agent agrees to work with Alberto on the book, and he ends up devoting a lot of time to it. He's he's very enthusiastic. 
at one point he even tells Alberto that a, a very famous music star, um, Alberto asked me to leave this name out. It's sort of a weird story, but but according to the agent, this music star was launching a film company and wanted to maybe do a film adaptation of it. Here's Alberto explaining what his agent said about that. He's actually going to start a film production company, wouldn't you know? And I just sat down with his representatives in Hollywood, pitched your book to them. They want to read it. And you get really excited. Right, you get very excited. The excitement, unfortunately, didn't last that long. Alberto's problems stemmed from his choice of how to handle the bio section you're supposed to include when you send a book out to agents. The only thing I write, because you have to include a short bio, is that, hey, you know, I was born in Hawaii. I went to UVA. That's basically, <laughs> that's all I write for my, for my bio. And, you know, it seems that, you know, my identity had never come up explicitly. And I didn't really, you know, present the book as uh, the definitive telling of the Black experience or anything like that. I was just, you know, talking about some knuckleheads. <laughs> as I told Alberto, that would have been a good title, though. University Thugs colon the definitive telling of the Black experience. I think that would have sold a lot, a lot of copies. Definitely. So by the time Alberto and the agent feel like the book is ready to go out to publishers, it's the fall of 2018. Fall is the busy season when publishers acquire books. Alberto's agent says, cool, we're good to go. But can you just write a little bit about, you know, who you are, why you wrote this book? You know, editors like to know, you know, they like to know who you are, who they're working with. And so I just basically do the same riff. Hey, you know, uh, you know, grew up in, you know, born in Hawaii, military, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I wrote this book because, you know, I, I felt that, I guess, you know, I'd grown up believing that education, and in particular, higher education is this kind of equalizing force in society, something that will, I guess, close the gap, um, heal the divisions, racially, culturally, class-wise, whatever. Right. I was, you know, raised that way. But, you know, after going to college and going through it, it's like, you know, college is a place that for a lot of people really intensifies a lot of these divides. And I thought, you know, that, that's something worth writing about. But the agent isn't satisfied. And he's like, oh, you know, this is great. This is great. But since you're writing about race and identity, can, can you make sure that you include your race? Uh-oh. I was like, okay. And so, you know, I write that, you know, I'm, my parents are Filipino immigrants. And, you know, that's a moment where everything changed. You know, the record screeched to a halt. And I get on the phone with, with the agent. And, you know, he tells me, hey, you're, you're not black? Are you Filipino? Oh my God, we got to get ahead of this. You know, we got to get ahead of this. You're going to face a shit storm. And yeah, I remember hearing that, you know, got to get ahead of this. And I remember him in, over the phone 
you know, he had invested all this time in this book. And, and I, I truly believe that he was protective of it, right? Alberto told me that this really was the moment when his prospects of getting his book published changed forever. Part of the issue was that there'd been this other recent controversy involving an Asian author writing about black characters and, and getting in trouble for it that the agent was aware of. But there's also just sort of the, the general atmosphere of everything. And, and obviously the agent is aware of that and you know has to protect himself and his authors. Oh, God, what a nightmare. So they both spent a long time working on this, and then everything screeches to a halt because he's the wrong race? What happened next? Well, basically, you know, I get caught up in racial compliance, right? So, you know, I'd taken 10, 10 years to get to this point writing this book, but we're at the stage where, you know, the, the kinds of revisions and editing I have to make are, are about remaining in compliance with whatever racial rules they are in the industry. Jesse, what kind of rules are we talking about here? Well, the, the rules got pretty complicated. I'll let, uh, I'll let Alberto explain that too. So the agent is telling me, hey, we, we got to swap some races around. Right? We need to get a Filipino in this book somehow. Because so far, it's all black. I mean, there's some mixed race people, but you know they're black. And, you know, so we engage in some horse trading. I'm like, okay, how about this character? Can I make them half Filipino? He's half Korean, just slide in the Filipino. And he's like, oh, no, right? Um, it has to be full and it has to be, if not Filipino, it has to be, you got to choose um, this column of, of other Asian races and you, you can't choose Middle Eastern. It was very precise. And I was kind of shocked, like <laughs> hearing him, he had it all kind of plotted out. I mean, he must have, <laughs> you must have the, uh, the secret, um, like crib sheet for all the oppression points or what have you. Oh my God. Uh, tell me the agent isn't white. The agent is white. Uh, he's white both in terms of his race and his pallor at that particular <laughs> moment. A lot of the men I grew up around were in the military and they talk about, you know, these near death experiences, but, you know, talking to my agent, I've never heard a grown man so scared. So I emailed this agent and didn't hear back, by the way, I, I can understand why it might not be in his interest to explain any of this. We're, we're leaving his name out because Alberto wanted to. Let's just, put his name in. No, we're, we're, <laughs> I can understand that Alberto wants us to leave it out. I'm going to leave it out. We'll see that Alberto has sort of mixed feelings about the guy. Um, but the agent eventually tells Alberto, okay, let's wait for the new year. By this time, That'd be New Year's 2019. But there's a big change in their approach at this point. Until the agent found out Alberto's race, the idea had been to try to stoke a bidding war between publishers. This is basically a best case scenario for an author and an agent, particularly a new author, because you can potentially drive the price of the book up stratospherically, and it just brings a lot of attention to a new author. But now the idea is to just target one editor instead. So let's hunt down an editor who is is just crazy enough to take on, I guess, a potentially dangerous and toxic book like this who has no regard for his reputation. I mean, he didn't use those words, but that was the basic strategy. So they, they find this crazy editor. Presumably they track him down in some like forgotten asylum upstate. The agent emails him about the book and just doesn't hear back. Uh, eventually gets him to respond. He's lukewarm. So they change tactics again. They're now going to send the manuscript out to a list of, of publishers as they intended to before, but it's a revised list. 
And Alberto notes that the editors at publishing houses that appear oriented to black readers seem to have been taken off the list. And he's like, hmm. They finally send the book out. There's just no interest. And the agent professes to being confused. Uh-huh. I'm sure he's very confused. <laughs> Tells me he's confused. He's never seen anything like this. He just, you know, doesn't know. Usually he could read the market. And, you know, he's just telling me, okay, some people thought it was just too long and you know, they're kind of confused here. And, you know, some people just weren't responding. And, you know, the whole process is just kind of slipping away and petering out. And, you know, I'm always a hard worker. I put my head down. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm just tell me something to fix. I will fix it. We'll make it work. We only need one. Okay, so at this point, he thinks that we can just fix the book, get it in better shape, and then maybe they can sell it, like find someone to sell it to. Yeah, yeah. And and so part of it is that some of the feedback was the book was too long. And I think that adds a layer of complexity here where books don't sell for a lot of reasons. So you can't always know for sure what's motivating an individual editor's decision. And to be fair, it's a pretty long book. You can't breeze through it in one sitting or anything. But of course, at this point, Alberto is getting pretty suspicious about the feedback he's getting. A part of me always suspected that, you know, it's not, it's not the length, you know, it's not the writing. Um, you know, it's the fact that a Filipino guy is writing this book. I mean, I, I felt I, I kind of knew that at some level, but um, it was not something that we were talking about at the time. And heightening his suspicions, race becomes a bigger and bigger part of Alberto's conversations with his agent. And some weird stuff starts to happen. Uh, like what? Like this. What happens next is that, you know, with an agent, you're not in touch with the agent every day. You know, weeks and months will go by. And then you'll, you'll check in with the agent. You'll be like, oh, you know, hey, is there any more names? And be like, yeah, you know, we'll, we're getting the names lined up. And then a couple of months will pass. And I remember that George Floyd died. And, you know, there was this unrest throughout the nation. And I'm watching on TV, the, the country burn up, people out in the streets, very angry. And, you know, I felt that I understood the rage in the streets. And I felt that my work spoke in particular to that rage. And I had to email the, I had to email the agent being like, hey, look, the the world needs this book, right? We're, we're we're teetering on the on the brink of destruction here. The people need this book. Whatever you need, this book feels more relevant now than ever. And he's like, you know what? I was thinking the same thing. Um, and so he's like, okay, let's talk on the phone. And so when we talk again, you know, he's he's more frank. He's like, okay, we got to do something about you being Filipino. That's the only way we can make this work. We got to address your Filipino-ness. <laughs> yeah. So, and it was clear that, okay, my identity was a liability. Right, we got to do something about this. And, you know, I'd been resisting that for a while because, you know, I, I told you, Jesse, it's like, okay, get the writer out of the way. You know, it's all about the characters. It's about, you know, the book. It's about the scene. It's not about the writer. I mean, I, I hate or... You know, I just can't stand writing where the author has to announce himself 
all the time. Or, hey, I'm writing a writer over here. But I agreed. I said, you know what? I will find a way to make this terrible idea of putting my racial stand in in the book. I will find a way to make it work. You know, because as a, you know, a creative person, you're like, okay, we deal with constraints. Let me see if I could take this terrible idea and make it work. And I said, okay, I'll work on it. And I've been long reluctant. I eventually write in that Filipino stand-in. Had to thread the needle a couple times. I'm very proud of the Filipino stand-in. I happen to believe he steals the scene in a few places, but he's not kind of overtaking the narrative, right? Because the book is the book. The story is the story. Okay, so instead of pulling a Rachel Dolezal and making Alberto black, they decided to just insert a Filipino character. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, more or less. And having made this update, Alberto talks to the agent about the present state of the manuscript, and that's where some of the requested plot changes get a little bit bigger. And he's like, great. We really love the Filipino character. We love him so much. Can we have more of him? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I was like, oh, okay. And he kept steering me to, I, I guess, like, why don't we tell this story from the Filipino guy's perspective? So that was a pretty big deal to change the whole point of view of the book. But then there were some even more specific requests on the agent's part as well. He kept describing a conversation that the Filipino guy should have with the Puerto Rican, half Puerto Rican character. And he kept, he kept trying, I mean, because I don't even understand like the, the, uh, the rationale, but he's like, Hey, you know, we love, we love the Filipino character, but you're holding back. You just need to go whole hog. Like, what do you mean whole hog? But, you know, there's this distance between him and the other black characters. But you really need to write into that more. I'm like, what? It's like, hey, it wouldn't be nice if we had this, you know, he had an interaction with the other non-black character. And they could talk about these issues. And, you know, already, you know, know, the alarm bells are going off. And it's like, okay, this isn't about the art or the aesthetic or the emotional impact. I mean, this is straight up, you know, ideology. This is straight up, you know, racial compliance department mandate that I have to obey. But, you know, him explaining that I had to write this really phony and heavy handed scene where characters explicitly talk about their racial identity and distance. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, what does he want me to say? Hey, Hey, Philippine, uh, hey, Puerto Rican character, you know, isn't, isn't it strange that we could never understand the experience of these black guys? Wouldn't it be wrong for us to write a book one of these days, have you? I mean, I just didn't understand what he wanted. And it, I would just remember being just very confused, but, you know, sensing on a different level that there was something very wrong going on. 
This part of my interview with Alberto reminded me a lot of those emails I got from aspiring YA authors, this idea of white editors and agents telling non-white writers to focus on very predictable, very straightforward narratives that are palatable to white book-reading audiences. From Alberto's point of view, what his agent was suggesting just never would have happened. The characters in his book would never have been like, okay, let's talk about how we are black and you are Filipino and how that creates tensions. Meet me in the multicultural center for this important discussion. (laughs) He should have just made everyone in the book white. (laughs) Just different uh, different denominations of Judaism. (laughs) But the, the racial dynamics between Alberto and his white agent only get worse and only get more awkward. I think when that final phone call I had with him, I remember him saying, oh, you know, we've got a new person to the team because I had just been corresponding with him and his assistant. And he's like, oh, we've well, got this new person on the team. I'm like, cool, whatever. And on the phone, the, the agent is kind of apologetic about this new addition to the team. And he didn't use the word sensitivity reader. I mean, that's just me kind of reading the situation. But he's like, oh, yeah, we have this new person on the team. She's black. So, yep, it is sensitivity reader time. Oh, no. Oh, yes. She's also from a very different background from any of the characters in his book. So she seems like the perfect candidate. (laughs) Exactly. But the fact that he felt it's like, okay, you know, I brought in this new reader. I didn't want to do this. But, you know, she's black and she's. You know, she's born in, she's from the Caribbean and and she's, you know, based out of the UK. And, you know, as I'm hearing this, I'm like, you know, is, <laughs> you know, does that give her jurisdiction over these, you know, black dudes in Virginia? I'm like, you know, it's like, how, how far, how far does her jurisdiction stretch? And it's just, you know, very, very weird conversation. So the idea that a black person from the Caribbean living in the UK has any special <laughs> insights into the lives of black UVA students, not from that background, is just like, again, I don't want to call it racist, but isn't that pretty close to just racist? I mean, Jesse, all people of a, skir- of a certain skin tone have similar experience, if not exact, the exact same experiences. It doesn't matter where you actually grew up or what time or whatever. Clearly, all the they same. all love jazz. That's just part of their shared <laughs> racial essence. And you love jazz, too, so you're part of it. <laughs> I, I swing pretty hard, as our uh, primos yeah, know. Indeed. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, Alberto did not like this. It's like, you know, give me a person, any black person, just get this, any black person to read this book and, and speak to its... You know, to speak to its authenticity. Yeah, send it. Send in the black. We need any black, right? I mean, sorry to be glib, but it's just—I don't know. That that was the vibe I got because you know I'm not. You know, I never really put myself as writing about the black experience. And you know, whenever I hear people saying they're writing about you know the Filipino experience or the experience of this ethnicity. You know, I think that's really fucking presumptuous. I mean, uh, my dad keeps coming up. It's like, I barely understand that dude. You know, <laughs> I can't even speak for that guy. And that's my fucking dad, right? I got half his DNA. And so for someone to to claim authority over a whole fucking race, like globally, or not saying that this person was doing that, but, you know, the idea of that, it's kind of preposterous. Okay, so Alberto is pissed. I can tell and I can see why he's pissed. Yeah, this was sort of it for Alberto. He he reached something of a breaking point here. 
I don't want to misrepresent this because there's a bit of a vibe of you can't fire me, I quit because no publisher was interested anyway. But right. but he came away from this experience really unhappy with how it had gone down as he explained to me. I had caved and, and I'd given the Filipino stand-in. And, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, I'm, I consider myself, you know, for me, it's about, it's about the art. And it's about writing as good a book as possible, right? It's really not about me or getting famous or, or, or whatever, whatever, right? It's about the work. It's about the page. And meanwhile, you know, I am trying to engage in corporate art. And so you have to understand that, you know, you are going to make trade-offs and concessions. But I told myself going in, you know, they're going to ask you to change stuff, but you have to know where your line is. And so the line that I had always drawn in my head, the line where I said, if they cross it, get the fuck out, was always, you know, if they tell you, hey, can you tone it down with, with the language, you know, the cursing, the N-word? If they ever told me, hey, could you tone it down with, with the violence, the roughhousing? Can, can you clean these guys up? Can you make them talk more like, grad students? Can you give them some sensitive hobby? Like they write poetry on the side, you know, like anything that would be just, just phony to their world. Right. Cause for me, it's just, you know, just tell the truth. Don't be phony. And so, you know, as I'm engaging in this editorial process, you know, I know that it's a novel it's 400 pages long. So there's this kind of cumulative impact that I'm going for. So if they want more flowers or more trees on page 17, give them more fucking flowers. I mean, it doesn't really impact the, the whole novel, right? Big picture. So, you know, I, I'm going along with this, but, you know, they, they crossed a line for me and I'm not saying like a moral line, but, you know, artistically when they suggest, okay, let's take this story and let's kind of subsume it under the Filipino experience narrative. Let's tell it from this Filipino guy's perspective. And, you know, that's, 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 I didn't want to subsume this story under, under that. Right. I mean, I, I guess one of these days I will write that Filipino experience book or about, you know, growing up in Hawaii or what have you, but not this fucking book. No way. One of the things I appreciated about Alberto was that he has a uh, very well-developed sense of empathy. He Filipinos do. <laughs> All of them do. <laughs> <laughs> he came away from his experience with this agent, not viewing him as some sort of evil, woke, white caricature, which I think would have been an easy and understandable thing to do, but as someone who is in a genuinely difficult position. He should have just never told the agent that he was Filipino. Just left that out. <laughs> Just like a, just becomes it like a, an extended sort of Mrs. Doubtfire situation, but yeah. much much more offensive. You could find out when they get the the headshots for the book cover. Here's what he said about his agent. He was great, and it was it, it was a privilege working with this guy. And I understand he was trying to protect me. Right? He 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 honestly believed. Okay, I love this book. I care about you as a writer. I don't want you to have to go through this shit. Right. I don't want people to, to, to accuse you of, I guess, racism, right? Or, or stepping out of bounds or 
doing anything wrong, right? Because, you know, he believes in the book. And I guess maybe part of it, you know, maybe he's looking out for himself as well, right? I mean, this is an industry from, I mean, I've never been to New York or actually I've been to New York, but this is an industry from my vantage point here in California. I'm looking at New York and they are, you know, gripped by fear of being canceled, being called a racist. And I had to think to myself, you know, can I really operate? Can I make art in that kind of environment where people are constantly worried about being canceled? So at one point, the agent actually suggests Alberto get to work, you know, trying to get his second book ready to send out to editors. Maybe if you sell the second book, the logic goes and and make a bit of a name for yourself, then you can return to that first manuscript and get someone to buy that. And Alberto does already have a full draft of his second manuscript. So he gets to work polishing it up, but he quickly finds that this whole experience has frankly messed up his ability to write without second guessing himself in a way he didn't before. Understandable. I'm reading book two and, you know, I feel that I'm getting gun shy because I start thinking, hey, is this is this scene or is this line of dialogue something that might piss off some editor or, or, or is this description? And that's some, something that, you know, people in New York won't like, or will this get me in trouble? Will that get me in trouble? And those, those kinds of thoughts are just absolutely toxic, absolutely corrosive to, to creativity. You know, it's no longer me and the page and the characters, you know, I'm just thinking about the industry. You know, I'm thinking about the opinions of people who probably willingly misunderstand what you're trying to do as an artist. And, you know, at, at a certain point, I, I made a decision where it's like, you know, I don't want to have to adjust my art to people who will never accept the fact that I'm a Filipino guy writing this book. Many people, hopefully not too many, just just won't accept that, right? A Filipino guy can't write this kind of book. And that's cool. That's cool. But I, I just, you know, don't want to kind of cater to these people who will never accept me or the book. I feel like that's as good a place as any to wrap this story up. It leaves us in a pretty surreal position. You have a Filipino writer whose dad cut sugarcane and who was the first in his family to graduate from like, you know, an actual brick and mortar university. He's trying to write authentically about things he experienced firsthand, firsthand. Talk about lived experience. Own voices. Own voices. Now he has the voices of people like his agent in his head because the worst thing he could do to torpedo his career is to offend the sensibilities of privileged white liberal New Yorkers. I just think it sort of tells you everything you need to know about how messed up some corners of the literary world is right now. And 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 not to exaggerate, but I think these dynamics are probably robbing us of some pretty amazing fiction when you think about all the stories we're not aware of. I mean, I want to read this book. Can I? What's the status now? So he basically gave up. And in September, he just put the book online, University Thugs. He actually published it under the name Free Chef, F-R-E-E-C-H-E-F. Um, I... I actually didn't ask about this, but I think basically for a long time, when he first reached out to us, he wasn't sure he wanted his name used at all. He really thinks that like talking about this openly 
could ruin his career and ruin his prospects yeah. of being published in mainstream presses. He eventually came to the conclusion he would rather talk about it. I, I don't think he's being paranoid. And he all. actually didn't, for the record, he actually didn't reach out to us. Somebody else reached out to us telling us about this story. That was how it originally started, right? Yeah. I think I might've yeah. said we, yeah. Okay. I, yes, I was connected to him and then I got on the phone with him and quickly, right. he was a really good guy and I liked him and I wanted to tell a story. So yes, University Thugs by Free Chef, $10 on Kindle, $17 paperback. I really, really liked it. I hope people read it. I also don't think this is a just outcome for a book that is no. really good. But again, you know, we should keep in mind, there was never a guarantee this would be published. I think it's very fair to wonder whether this story ends quite differently if Alberto happened to be a different race. Yeah. I mean, we might not be able to get him on this podcast if he had been on a different race because he might be a best-selling author. Yeah. Um, so check out the book if you can. So is he going to change his race? <laughs> he is getting a, a raci- racial dectomy. A f- <laughs> that is what they call it, a racial dectomy. Uh, I really like the guy. Part of the reason I'm telling this story is I just – I liked – in audio storytelling, like people's voices matter. I like his voice. I like the way he thinks through this issue. I think he's a very smart and thoughtful guy. And I think we should want people like that to be able to write books. I don't think, I think the incentives are really messed up. And and what it would be one thing if there was like, you know, a group of, of black agents and editors who ran the spectrum of public opinion and they were making these decisions. I really think these decisions are mostly driven by white editors and agents from a very specific political milieu who just aren't very interested in certain stories unless they're told by the quote-unquote right type of person. And anyway, I'm, I'm very biased on all this stuff because I've been writing about the young age stuff forever. But um, you, Well, they're also probably scared. I mean, they're very scared. Because there are real, real consequences to writing outside of your race, which is especially ridiculous when it comes to fiction. But we've seen this across other – other mediums too, film, television. Um, you know, having a having a straight actor play a gay character is now verboten. The whole thing is ridiculous, and it's happened really, really quickly. But it is it is a huge shame that he had to self publish this book. I can think of one upside though. What? His agent didn't get paid. <laughs> yeah, good. I, I, I'm gonna buy this book after we're done recording this. I'm gonna get this book right now. I will say that. This whole idea about writing outside your lane, this is such a good example of how complicated that is because think back to the sensitivity reader, a a British black woman working in publishing. She is obviously an expert on Virginia. But that's the thing. Alberto, if you want to talk about lived experience, Alberto lived with kids in UVA. These were his friends. These were his people. And he wanted to bring some of their stories to a broader audience, albeit fictionalized. Uh, that's all the lived experience you need. The, his skin color does not give him magical powers one way or another to be good or bad at telling these stories. It's such an impoverished way of understanding, you know, the stuff we have in common as as humans and the power of empathy and the power of writing. And that's doubly true in a case like this where he comes from a genuine working class background born on a sugar plantation. I just I found this pretty unbelievable. There are so many great works of literature that are told from somebody else's perspective. Yeah. But in the past, like, are we going to lose be. that entirely? Right? I don't Did know, you man. read the – Jeffrey Eugenides wrote a book that I, I really liked. It's, I haven't read it in years. I don't know if it would, if it would uh, withstand the test of time. I, I think it was Middlesex. And it was told from the perspective of, I believe, of women. And I remember or at least one of the characters was maybe a hermaphrodite or – I'm sorry, intersex or something like that. But it definitely wasn't from the perspective of like – a white male writer named Jeffrey Eugenides. Yeah. 
And I remember being struck by the time that he was able to really, uh, and I haven't read it for since it came out, but it really felt like he was able to do a female voice really, really well. And it didn't matter that he was male. It was good writing. Although maybe it doesn't hold up. Maybe I'll regret saying this. Maybe I'll get canceled. <laughs> Turns out it was just a like, shitty novel. No, I haven't read yeah, it, but it's like one of the most celebrated novels of the late 20th century, I think. Right, right. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, but I don't know if it would be in the, you know, of the, the early 20, what, what century is it now? 21st? I don't know if it would be celebrated now. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bad. So it, I hope people buy his book. He also, I told him that he should just start a newsletter not to actually write, but just if people are interested in finding about it out about like further developments or his work, I encourage him to just start a place to collect emails, freechef.substack.com. Uh, he's also, I guess he's going to exhume his circa 2012 Twitter account. If you want to follow him there at free chef. Um, again, I'm biased. I like the guy. I want him to succeed. So take, take whatever grains of salt you want. My recommendations. Yeah, we'll put a link to uh, to the book in the show notes. Um, I kind of wish that he had serialized it on Substack. It sounds like uh, that sounds like a great read. Something that might be fun to come in a, a newsletter form. Yeah, I mean, one of the conversations we had, one of the things he was asking me about is like, you know, should he pull it down from Amazon? And I had said, like, you know, there's a chance when your story goes out, maybe some brave editor will swoop in and want to publish it. I think the odds are pretty low. So it was a question of whether it made more sense for him to like pull it down and have it still be an unknown or just sell it. But I think at this point, he's just like, this has been a frustrating process from that has taken a very long time. And I think he just wants to get the story out there in its present form. Totally. Totally understandable. And it's also true that some Amazon published books have done really well. For instance, the Twilight series was was self-published, or at least it started out being uh, self-published. Or maybe it was Vampire Diaries. Do you know? I have no idea. I don't don't read stories about vampires written by (laughs) non-vampires. Oh, actually, wait, I'm talking about Fifty Shades of Grey that was self-published as an ebook um, in 2011. So uh, I don't know. Do you read books by, I guess E.L. James must be must be into BDSM. Otherwise, this uh, never could have become a bestseller. Yeah, publishing's weird. I'm uh, I'm grateful I got to publish a book. You should you should still write that book. You always t- tell me about, uh, you know, off mic about how oppressed you are as a lesbian and how many daily difficulties you face. You know, I've actually been working on a book about the Gullah Geechee people. I do, I do have some experience vacationing in, in low country in South Carolina. <laughs> I mean, they have magical powers, so it's a great thing to write about. It's fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. <laughs> Just leave it at that. We didn't do housekeeping. Should we do that real quick? Oh, yeah, we should do that. We are blocked and reported. You can reach us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. You should definitely join our premium program. Become one of our primos. If you go to blockedandreported.org, you can, uh, for $5 a month and up, you can gain access to at least three extra episodes a month, as well as all sorts of other goodies. We just did a really good long episode on the Lindsay Ellis saga. If you don't know what that is, a, you're lucky, but B, you're sort of missing out in a sense, and you should sign up. Uh, what other housekeeping? Yeah, if you go to blockedreported.org, you can also find a link to our merch store where you can get to- hoodies, tote bags, mugs. What else can you get, Jesse? Um, you know, books about different racial groups where we sort of imitate their style of writing and thinking. We've got a lot of those. Yeah, we also have Blocked and Reported branded calipers if you're into that <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but please come check it out. Our community there is is great and growing, and there's lots of robust conversations. We have some exciting things we're going to be announcing soon, shortly, possibly, uh, if we can uh, get our shit together. So uh, check it out, blocknerreported.org. Alberto has to fly to New York to prove to his agent he's black, and his agent just does have calipers in his desk, like all white <laughs> New York agents. Or like, the, or like the Pantone color swatches. 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, anything else, Katie? I think that's it. Thank you guys for listening. This has been Blocked Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, unless you've slept with at least five podcasters, do not make one of them the protagonist of your young adult novel. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, by the urine theory of property, land can only be claimed once you pee on it. <laughs>